www.edu. Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, Empire, American Style. Harvard professor Neil Ferguson presents his recent thoughts on America at war. Ferguson is a proponent of counterfactual history, a controversial method which attempts to answer what-if questions by imagining alternative outcomes of events as a way of stressing the contingent aspects of history. This talk was recorded live at the Beckman Institute Auditorium at the California Institute of Technology as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series and presented in conjunction with the Huntington USC Institute on California and the West and the Los Angeles Times editorial pages. Ferguson is introduced by the moderator for tonight's discussion, Andres Martinez, editorial page editor for the Los Angeles Times. It's a real pleasure to have you here, Neil, and it's an honor for the LA Times to run Neil's column every Monday. Neil wears a lot of hats. He teaches history at Harvard and Oxford and has done many things, has produced some great series for the BBC, and is the author of The House of Rothschild, The Pity of War, The Cash Nexus, Empire, and Colossus. And I I suspect Neil, who's originally from Scotland, has a factory somewhere hidden in the countryside of Wales or Scotland where where there are a lot of bright people churning out statistics and articles because it's amazing that one person could be so prolific. Even this afternoon somebody said, Oh, yeah, that was a great article he wrote in Vanity Fair. And I was like, Vanity Fair? This guy's everywhere. <laughs> and it was a good article. Well, I should also make a plug for the fact that our opinion pages in the paper are moving to the A section from the California section. It's really exciting. <laughs> so if you don't find Neil next Monday, it's, it's not that we canned him based on tonight's performance. It's, he's in a different section. And in conjunction with that move, we've asked our 10 weekly columnists to write up a little blurb about their column. So I thought this would be a nice way also of introducing Neil. And he writes, A Scotsman by birth, a historian by training, a wandering scholar by choice, I take very seriously the old adage that journalism is history's first draft. Whether I'm at Harvard, Oxford, or Stanford, I constantly ask myself what the second and third drafts may say about the latest world news. At the same time, I take the view that history is our best guide when it comes to answering most political questions, a much more reliable guide than any ideology or doctrine. What should we do about Iran, Iraq, or North Korea? Is China going to overtake us economically? Will we poison the oceans before we overheat the atmosphere? These are all questions I've addressed in recent columns. It helps that, as a compulsive nomad, I get to travel a lot. Belarus, Bosnia, Cambodia, China, Guatemala, Japan, Poland, Russia, and Turkey. I visited them all last year. You can add L.A. to that list now. (laughs) A rather pompous German shipowner before World War I had as his motto, my field is the world. I'd like to think that world is my field, too. The great thing is that every week when I write my column, I learn at least one new thing about it, and occasionally a new joke, too. And I think that conveys pretty well the scope of Neil's column, which, again, we're thrilled to run in the L.A. Times. Join me in welcoming Neil. Thanks very much.
And for those of you who haven't read Neil Ferguson's books or sampled them, I just wanted to throw out a nugget I picked up in reading half of your latest book. And that is, you mentioned in passing that in 1916, in the middle of World War I, U.S. exports accounted for roughly 12% of GDP for this country. That's the kind of scintillating fact we can all use at a cocktail party. But what's interesting about it <laughs> is you, you make the point that that is the highest percentage of GDP that goes to exports achieved in the entire 20th century. So in other words, the U.S. economy was more plugged into the global economy, more dependent on globalization, if we want to call it that, in 1916 than it was in the 1980s or 1990s. And that's the kind of perspective one really gleams from your work and from your ability to merge economic history with diplomatic history. There's a lot of interesting stuff there. But just to get the conversation going, as a student of empires, first and foremost, I wanted for you to talk a little bit about what the war in Iraq tells us about the nature of today's ruling empire in the world, if we want to call it that, the United States. And when you look at the decision to go to war, the execution, the quagmire that we're in now, and I think it's fair to call it a quagmire, what are the lessons to be learned about the nature of this empire? Well, that's a great question to begin with, Andres, because you're right, a lot of what I've written about in the last three years has been concerned with empire. I arrived to begin teaching in the United States at around about the time that the war against Saddam Hussein was being prepared. And in fact, it was rather strange because I arrived having just published a book called Empire, which had a rather corny subtitle in the United States, The Rise and Demise of the British World Order and the Lessons for Global Power. And at the conclusion of the book, I asked a simple question, which was how far the United States was really capable of taking on the mantle of the British Empire, of replicating some of the functions that the British Empire had performed 100 years before. And I expressed some doubt about this. And I sketched out the argument for what became another book, Colossus, in the conclusion of Empire, uh, which was published in 2003. And the question was essentially this. Despite its vast economic power and its extraordinary firepower, was the United States in some sense handicapped by three deficits, handicapped in such a way that it would be quite an unsuccessful and ineffectual empire? And the three deficits became central to the the argument of Colossus. Uh, One of them was a financial deficit. It's much harder to be an empire if you're the world's biggest debtor than if you're the world's biggest creditor. I mean, think about it. Who has more power? The British were, to an astonishing extent, 100 years ago, literally the world's banker, and their net overseas investments were really one of the levers of British imperial power. Whereas the United States clearly isn't in that position. And I do think the enterprise in Iraq and indeed in Afghanistan, although it looks to have cost a vast amount of money on paper, has in fact been, from a financial point of view, in some measure hobbled. Most of that money has in fact gone on simply equipping and feeding U.S. forces. Very little has gone on effective programs of reconstruction. So there's a financial deficit. 
And the second point I made was that the United States as an empire has a manpower deficit. This goes way back to an article I did in the New York Times magazine, which was about the problem Americans have, that they don't want to go to hot, poor countries in the way that 100 years ago, people from Scotland, like me, leapt at the chance <laughs> to go to hot, poor countries. I mean, most Americans feel that Alabama is enough. <laughs> and although I'm making this in a frivolous way, it's a serious point. It's quite hard to run an empire if you don't export large numbers of people. It's not enough just to send the 82nd Airborne. You, you need settlers. Most empires have been based in some measure on emigration and settlement. And, of course, the United States is not that. It imports people, and, and very few Americans would, would like to go and make a new life for themselves in Mesopotamia. <laughs> but the, th- the, the, the third deficit, there were three deficits. I tend to think in threes. Uh, the third deficit was, in, in my view, the fatal one, and it was the American attention deficit. <laughs> And I coined the, the glib phrase that the United States was the first empire with attention deficit disorder syndrome because every time any major military undertaking was initiated, it had to be over within two to four years because that, of course, is the kind of time frame within which American politics works. So this wasn't a frivolous point designed to denigrate this great country, but to point out that if you're a democracy... Your politicians are under pressure to deliver results in their foreign undertakings in a very short time frame. And, of course, it can't be done. I mean, empires need decades, even centuries, to achieve fundamental transformations of the places that they take over. The average duration of a British occupation, I remember working this out, in the nerdy way I do, was in excess of 100 years for all the different places that came under British rule at any point after about 1600. And you really can't change countries fundamentally in four years. The most successful American occupations, which were in West Germany and Japan, not coincidentally, are among the longest-lasting. The shorter the intervention, by and large, the bigger the mess. So I kind of sketched an argument at the end of empire, which I think has proved quite prescient. I mean, I think the problems, the defects of this peculiar empire are now glaringly manifest for all to see that despite the vast economic resources and the firepower, the United States really struggles to occupy and transform foreign countries. And perhaps the lesson is that it shouldn't try. Well, you, uh, I read also that your point about, and I forget now, I might be wandering into the Vanity Fair article, which I read today, it was either there in the book that you mentioned that the British committed 135,000 troops to Iraq in 1920 to pacify some unrest, and that that number is uncannily close to the number of U.S. troops in Iraq today, and yet the population of Iraq uh, back then was one-tenth of what it is now. So when you talk about the kind of inadequate resources, if you want to describe it that way, that the United States is committing to its imperial project, is that due to the fact that we're just kind of a flabby society that wants instant gratification and doesn't want to sacrifice? Or does it have to do, do you think, with an ambivalence on the part of the country or a reluctance to play this role on the global stage? I think there's a profound ambivalence towards empire in this country, though it's interesting to ask when it began. Uh, It's certainly not there at the time of the Founding Fathers, who all talk quite openly of the United States as an empire. 
It's, uh, in fact, a word that was used quite commonly in the debates about how the, the United States should evolve. In the 19th century, manifest destiny meant that the empire was regarded as, in a sense, divinely ordained. And I argued in Colossus that it's only actually at the time when things go wrong in the Philippines just over a century ago, that you start to get this hostility towards imperialism as an integral part of American political culture. Now, I don't think, therefore, it's entirely a matter of, as it were, not wanting to be the redcoats. Though I think there's something of that. I mean, whenever I want to make an American audience feel really uncomfortable, I say, you are the redcoats now. And there's a ghastly frisson. (laughs) Because it's true. And that's extremely hard for Americans to feel comfortable with. Thinking about it also just in in statistical terms, the number of Americans as a percentage of the population who are engaged in active military duty overseas is very small. And so for most Americans, direct contact with what you might call the imperial project is quite minimal. I mean, when you see or when you visit those places which have large military bases or Texas where I spent some time trying to understand this world better, it's very obvious that you are among the legions. Uh, But you can be in Massachusetts for a very long time and be wholly unaware of the existence of of this military capability. So I think it is ambivalence in some measure. But it's also a practical matter. The United States has been a fantastically successful nation state As it expanded across the North American continent, it it didn't colonize. It integrated entirely into the national political system. And that was really quite an unusual development. It didn't need to be that way. I mean, the 13 rebellious colonies could have created an empire and subjugated the Native Americans and kept them in a dependent status in colonies. But that didn't happen. So the United States created itself as a very successful federal state, and it's been so successful that I think most Americans wonder why bother going beyond that and acquiring colonies, which is why you have very few of them. I mean, Puerto Rico. Uh, And beyond that, not a great deal. Uh, It's still puzzling, though, from the vantage point of the historian, why the United States stopped where it stopped and why its expansion didn't, in a sense, go further. Why Hawaii and not Cuba? I mean, Cuba's a sort of dead sitter for further American expansion. And I found it absolutely fascinating when I was working in Colossus to try to understand the self-imposed limits of American power. Because I think American power is fundamentally checked, not by other powers, but by Americans themselves. The United States could be much more powerful if Americans wanted it to be. Is it democracy itself that serves as a break? Not necessarily, because there have been some very aggressive democracies in the past, and in many ways the British Empire reached its territorial zenith as a democracy. I think it's the peculiar character of American political culture. One symptom of this is the syndrome of imperial denial, which is very widespread, in which a clear majority of Americans will assure you, with, I think, total sincerity, that the United States isn't an empire. And then... American politicians with total insincerity will also assure you (laughs) that it's an empire. But do you remember that extraordinary article in the New York Times magazine just before the last presidential election that Ron Susskind wrote, which was a profile of Bush? And there was an extraordinary quotation in there from somebody identified by Susskind simply as a Bush aide or a close presidential aide, which began, we're an empire now, and went on to say... And we can make our own reality. And all of you, meaning we who write for a living, all of you will just have to observe 
what we do and record our acts. And I remember reading that and thinking, we make our own reality? <laughs> we are an empire now? Has this been watching Star Wars? Oh, that's, been, <laughs> that's been prophetic, hasn't it? You're listening to historian Neil Ferguson in conversation with Los Angeles Times editorial page editor Andres Martinez. This is Zocalo. Join Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series as we kick off our 2007 season. On Tuesday, January 9th at 7 p.m., Zocalo presents Jim Newton on Earl Warren and the Californiaization of America. The work of Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren and the Warren Court is widely known and fiercely debated for its impact on far-flung fields such as racial equality, privacy, police procedure, and voting rights. Jim Newton is the Los Angeles Times City-County Bureau Chief and author of the new book on Earl Warren. This event at the Los Angeles Central Library is free, but reservations are recommended. To reserve your seats and to download past radio programs, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to Neil Ferguson and Andres Martinez. I should mention the subtitle of your book, 20th Century Conflict and the Descent of the West, and clearly one of your provocative thesis in the book is that the 20th century, contrary to what we sometimes think, really was a time of decline for the, the West. And when you compare sort of 1900 to where we were in 2000, despite the fact that we, we like to talk about the American century, you crunch a lot of numbers in, in your clever way and, and show that the number of people in, in Asia and Africa living under colonial rule, and, and clearly by, by those metrics... The conflicts within Europe came at a great cost in terms of European uh, nations losing their empires. And I get that. But I guess I'm questioning the thesis a little bit in the sense that to the extent that we now are marveling about growth in China and the the miracle of the Japanese transformation in, in the second half of the 20th century in Korea and what's happening uh, to to a lesser degree, uh, I guess, or more recently in India, aren't those cases of Western ideas and values triumphing in the sense that China's turnaround occurs when Deng Xiaoping decides that he needs to tap into the global economy and buy into kind of American notions of of how markets work, et cetera, and allow in the Coca-Colas of the world? I mean, and that taps back a little bit to the sort of Francis Fukuyama notion that the end of communism represented an end of history and the triumph of democracy in markets. And clearly, we, we're not seeing democracy spring out in Beijing. But, but talk a little bit about this notion that everybody's kind of buying into a certain orthodoxy, which really is made in America, is it not? Well, of course, the, the term dissent is quite carefully chosen in the subtitle. When I, when I use the phrase dissent of the West, I quite deliberately want to... Uh, convey at least two meanings. One is the moral dissent which occurred in the 20th century. From the extraordinary uh, grandiose claims that were made by Western empires at the beginning uh, of the 20th century, the civilizing mission and all that, the West collapsed into an abyss of immorality which culminated in the 1940s. And, And I want to stress that the immorality was not exclusively on one side of that conflict in World War II. All sides partook of barbaric t- 
tactics and strategies in World War II. So moral dissent is a part of the story. But the economic and political dissent is, I think, quite an easy argument to stand up. Once you grasp the astonishing dominance that Western powers enjoyed in 1900, and that's really the key point, if you start the story in the right place, the zenith of Western power was clearly 1900. And I think it's worth bearing in mind that in 1900, 82% of the world's population lived in one empire or another. And these empires came in two forms. They were either disintegrating oriental empires that the Western powers indirectly controlled, like China and the Ottoman Empire, or they were the Western empires proper that genuinely and directly ruled over countries like India, or in the American case, the Philippines, which had just been annexed at that time. And I suppose that's really the point I was trying to convey. In 1900... Asia, the most populous part of the world even then, it's even more so today, was almost entirely under some form or another of Western rule. Japan was the sole exception. And it's Japan that begins to turn the tide. In 1904, I see the War of the World as effectively beginning when the Japanese defeat Russia in the Russo-Japanese War for control of Manchuria. That's a real turning point. It was the first time in a very long time that an Asian power had successfully withstood the long arm of European imperialism. Uh, And I think from that point on, it is possible to speak of dissent in that second way. In relative terms, the West's power inexorably waned. Now, the United States, in some measure, looks like the exception to that rule, which is why Henry Luce talks about an American century in 1941. His hope was that despite the total collapse of the European empires that Japan had achieved during World War II, out of the war would come a new American century, which was really supposed to begin, I guess, in 1945. But one of the points I make in the book is that the real winner in 1945, and certainly the real winner by 1949, wasn't the United States half so much as it was the Soviet Union. Uh, And the Soviet Union wins much more decisively, at least in territorial terms, at World War II. The biggest prize of all, from Roosevelt's perspective, had, after all, been China and more broadly control of the Pacific and East Asia. Well, it looks as if Stalin's won when the communist revolution sweeps China. And that brings me just to one final point. I mean, you ask a hugely important question here, Anderson. It's such an interesting one that uh, at the risk of droning on, I'll try and add one more point. The point is how far we should regard what is happening in China today as in any sense, quote, made in America. And the project, of course, was that it would be, and that in the enterprise zones, American-based multinationals would be able to engage in foreign direct investment and beautifully boost their own uh, profitability with cheap Chinese labor. That has happened up to a point, but to a much lower point than we expected. Only about 10% of foreign direct investment in China today is from the United States. That's a lot less than was predicted. It hasn't shown any upward trend in growth. And when you look closely, as I did when I went to China last year, at what exactly is going on in China's economy, it would be a grave mistake to regard it as, in some sense, a replica of the American model of the more or less free market. It is a planned market that China is currently running. And, you know, every time I talk to people who've recently visited Shanghai, the neophytes, they always tell me roughly the same story. You've probably all heard this. Oh, 
you would not believe it. I have never seen anything like it. It's like 10 Manhattans simultaneously being built. You've never seen so much construction in your whole life. What an incredible economic miracle. This is going to change everything. And I say to them, you know, if you had gone to Moscow in around about 1931, you'd have come back seeing exactly the same thing. Oh, I've never seen so much construction. I've never seen such huge tire blocks. It's exactly what visitors like Sidney and Beatrice Webb said when they went to the Soviet Union. Now, the system's not the same, but we should not overlook the directing hand of central government in all that has happened in China since Deng Xiaoping's reforms. And we shouldn't fall into the trap of thinking that this is just a kind of Americanization of Asia. You won't find many Asians who would agree with that proposition, and no Chinese at all, in my experience. You're listening to historian Neil Ferguson and Los Angeles Times editorial page editor Andres Martinez. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. 2006 has been a busy year for Zocalo Radio. Click on Zocalo's website to hear radio guests such as Pulitzer Prize winner Sonia Nazario, Nobel Peace Prize winner Mohammed Yunus, pharmaceutical industry critic Greg Kreitzer, author Kwong Pham, and many more. Go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, we return to our program, Empire American Style, with Neil Ferguson and Andres Martinez. Stay tuned to Zocalo. By the time your morning is over, you may have heard the headlines. But it may not be clear what's behind the story. What the story means. Who's responsible and who's affected. I'm Alex Chadley. And I'm Madeline Brand. For in-depth news, the people behind the stories and more. Please join us for Day to Day from NPR News. Weekday mornings at 9 on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to historian Neil Ferguson in a discussion with L.A. Times editorial page editor Andres Martinez. Another thing I wanted to get into was your core argument in the book. You talk about how historians, and I suppose especially when you're in school and you study history in elementary school and junior high school and high school, there's a certain tidiness to thinking of World War One started in 1914, ends in 1918, and it has, I think in my school, it had 12 causes, which wasn't too tidy. I don't know why they couldn't have got it down to 10, you know. But anyways, and, and you, wrote a, you wrote a phenomenal book, The Pity of War on World War One, and, and you talked, in, I think, in the intro about setting out to writing a sequel on the Second World War. And I sort of got the sense that you just couldn't bring yourself to write yet another book on... 1939 to 1945, and maybe in despair you came up with this very funky theory that that really what the world experienced was a half-century war that starts, as you mentioned, in 1904-1905 with the Russo-Japanese War and goes until the end of the Korean War in 1953. And I just wanted to ask you to sort of flesh that out a little bit. So one of the key ideas, Andrews, was that what's interesting about 20th century violence is that it's quite localized geographically. I mean, there are certain places which are just fantastically dangerous. Uh, it's a very bad idea to be born in, say, Ukraine in 1904. 
your life is quite likely to end violently. And I, I mean this not, not as a frivolous point. It was a fantastic bit of bad luck to be born there. A huge amount of the conflict that occurred in the world between 1904 and 1953 occurred in two regions. There was a triangle of territory from the Baltic to the Balkans to the Black Sea in Central and Eastern Europe. And there was another zone of conflict, which was Manchuria-Korea. And huge amounts of the violence that occurred in the 20th century was concentrated in those areas. So I think it's not too much of a stretch to say that there is a continuum of conflict. It's certainly a continuum of conflict if you live in those places. You don't have a sort of wonderful sense of, ha-ha, the roaring 20s have come to Kiev. Uh, <laughs> they didn't happen there. Or rather, the roaring took a very different form. Equally, in the Balkans, there really aren't periods when everybody says, isn't this great? You know, finally, peace and stability. And I think it's, it's all about shifting not only from that textbook view that the First World War had 12 different forms of origin uh, and its origins can be traced back to 1871 or whatever. It's also about shifting the geographical framework. I mean, part of the problem any historian confronts is his own innate parochialism. We, we start out, whether we like it or not, as historians of our nation because history is by definition, or at least by tradition, a national subject. It's a huge struggle to get out, at least it has been for me, of a British or Anglo-centric mindset. But this book really determinedly tries to do that. It focuses on the places where the violence happened and doesn't give central stage to the English-speaking powers, which turn out to have been quite marginal players in the conflicts that I'm talking about. They're significant precisely because of their inability to influence what happens in Poland or Ukraine. So I think that's part of the theory. And, and in a sense, therefore, the old chronological frameworks only mean something from an English-speaking point of view. 1939-45 are the British dates of the war. But they're not the Russian dates. They're not even the American dates, come to think of it. They're certainly not the Chinese dates. And one of the points I try to make in the book is that the Second World War actually begins long before 1939 in Asia could arguably be said to begin in 1931. It certainly began in 1937, and that would be my preferred date for starting the war. As for its terminus, I mean, 1945 leaves everything unresolved in Asia. I mean, really, nobody knows what's going to happen in China, which had been, of course, the principal Japanese preoccupation from the very word go. That's not really decided until 49, and its full implications don't manifest themselves until the Korean War, when it's suddenly clear just how badly wrong... American visions for post-war Asia have gone. So although it may sound like a sort of rather pointless novelty to, to redefine the century in terms of a 50-year war, I think it works quite well. At least it works quite well in those conflict zones that most interest me. You're listening to historian Neil Ferguson in conversation with LA Times editorial page editor Andres Martinez. This is Zocalo. Join Zocalo as we kick off our 2007 season. On Tuesday, January 9th at 7 p.m., Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series presents Jim Newton on Earl Warren and the Californiaization of America. The work of Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren in the Warren Court is widely known and fiercely debated for its impact on far-flung fields such as racial equality, privacy, police procedure, and voting rights. Jim Newton is the Los Angeles Times City County Bureau Chief and author of the new book on Earl Warren. 
This event at the Los Angeles Central Library is free, but reservations are recommended. To reserve your seats and to download past radio programs, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We return now to Neil Ferguson with Andres Martinez. From a U.S. perspective, we're living in a especially fraught time. You mentioned the uh, the viewpoint of the administration as revealed in that Susskind article, and can't pick up the paper without reading about some attempted short-circuiting of the Constitution because of the war on terror, etc. At the same time, when we read your book, we're reminded of just what a horrendous half-century the world experienced in that time frame that we discussed. And you end on a pretty positive note. So how do you put in perspective – I mean, pe- people, I think, always like to feel that they're living in, you know, the most interesting of times, as, as the Chinese would say, or at a time of, of special peril. But if you step back and you were to characterize the time we're living now, despite all our immediate preoccupations, and we started off talking about the war in Iraq, I mean, is this, when all is said and done, a, a relatively prosperous, peaceful time for the world? Well, it's certainly a prosperous time. There's no question that if you look at measures of global economic growth, there really hasn't been a global boom like this in any previous period that I can think of, of such sustained and rapid growth, that it should be so widespread that it should affect the most populous countries in the world. I mean, these are reasons to be cheerful, certainly from the vantage point of an economic historian. The question really is all one of relative danger. Part of what I tried to do in the book was to rethink the Cold War in a little, I suppose, epilogue. The point I tried to make there was that there was no long peace after 1945. The Cold War can't be characterised as a long peace because all that happened was that violence was relocated. The places that I talked about earlier were partitioned, great big line through the middle of Central Europe, line through the middle of Korea... And war was not only relocated, but in some sense it was outsourced to proxies. So you ended up with huge wars being fought in places like Angola, Guatemala, Indochina, of course. It wasn't as if war stopped during the Cold War. It just moved. And that's why I think it's legitimate to say that a third world war actually happened. I mean, there was a third world war. It happened in the third world. And we kind of just pretended it wasn't going on. That's given rise, I think, to this illusion that the Cold War was a wonderful time of stability, which I occasionally hear people argue. I think this is nonsense. And the peace that we experienced in uh, the United States and indeed in Western Europe was a peace under the threat of nuclear Armageddon. We forget this now. But I'm old enough to remember that sense that it could all end with a series of vast mushroom clouds. And that fear did not go until, I guess, the mid-1980s, until around the time of Reykjavik, when it suddenly became clear that Reagan and Gorbachev were revolutionaries and that the Cold War was, was over in their heads and would therefore be over for the rest of us quite quickly. By comparison with that era, when the world really was in grave danger of thermonuclear war, I think our own times uh, really seem quite placid. I don't, in fact, and I've never attached as much, don't attach as much importance to the threat of international terrorism because by comparison with the Red Army and its vast nuclear arsenal, Al-Qaeda is no more dangerous than the anarchists and extreme Bolsheviks of 100 years ago. 
And we, we had terrorist organizations in the first age of globalization, to coin a phrase, pre-1914. The world was a highly globalized, highly integrated world, but there were extremists who were committed to the destruction of Western values. And periodically they carried out terrorist outrages. But they only really became dangerous when they captured a major uh, global power, which was Russia. And as soon as the Bolsheviks took over the Russian Empire, the world became dramatically more dangerous. If al-Qaeda were to take over some comparable geopolitical player, then I'd be scared. But now, I think by comparison with most of the 20th century, we live in a relatively safe time. The wars that we are fighting, and this is always a hard point to convince people of, are small wars. By 20th century standards, they are small colonial skirmishes. And although the death tolls are deeply shocking, and the prospect of civil war in Iraq, which we might talk about in a moment, is deeply alarming, so far, the scale of conflict in the world is relatively low compared with the period that I cover in the book. That's not to say we should all relax. Uh, I'm really quite deeply pessimistic about what lies before us. But I don't think it's possible to characterize the post-9-11 period as a time of, of grave mortal peril. And I should say, and this is worth pointing out, that whenever I hear politicians using the language of the Second World War to characterize our present predicament, talking in terms of the Third World War, Talking, interestingly, in terms of Islamo-fascism, totally misleading coinage, which is designed to make us think we are, in some sense, appearing in Saving Private Ryan. I, I, get my, I get my hackles rise, because this just is not that situation. It's so different from that situation that we're liable to make grave mistakes by applying that analogy. The other thing that seems to get your hackles rised is, is this argument... <laughs> Elevated... <laughs> The, the Fukuyama argument that with the Cold War coming to a close in 89, it's the end of history, and you offer up in the book 1979 as a more compelling turning point in world history, if you want to address that a little bit. Because in 1979, I was you know in junior high school in Mexico and discovering the joys of disco, so I, I wasn't aware at the time that this was such a turning point. So if you could... Uh, and leisure suits, but that's a separate discussion. <laughs> You were missing out, Andres, because we were in the grip of punk rock. I was in a punk band uh, in 1979. And, far more uh, hip than I was. I, we were pretty hip, actually, I have to say. I only became square subsequently. Uh, the, uh, the interesting thing about 1979 is that it's far more important as a turning point than 1989. And, and the great mistake that Francis Fukuyama, a scholar I very much respect, made was to attach too much significance to the breakup of the Soviet Empire, which was really the end of a story, the end of the story of European empires. I mean, all that the Soviet Union was was the last of the European empires, run by a bunch of Western Russians and extending right into Asia. Its, its disintegration wasn't surprising, shouldn't have been surprising, given the obvious economic malfunction that had set in there, well, as early as the 70s. I mean, they kept going for a period by expensive oil, but the system was clearly decrepit. 79 is interesting because 79 spawned a whole series of challenges and responses to what might be called the triumph of the West, the American century. The responses, if you like, the attempts to revitalize the West, which I think were hugely important, can be dated from 79. Because 79 wasn't just uh, one of the years of punk rock, it was also the year Margaret Thatcher became prime minister 
of my country. And that was a real turning point. That was a moment at which a commitment to revitalize the market economy took hold politically, and it set the stage for comparable reforms in the United States. But at the same time as that happened, and I think that was a hugely important turning point in the English-speaking world, at the same time, think of what else was going on in the world in 1979. And 1979, of course, was the year of the Iranian Revolution, a much more important historical event than the collapse of Soviet power in Eastern Europe, I would contend. That was the moment when it became clear that a radicalized fundamentalist Islam could be the basis for political transformation in the greater Middle East. And that potential has been with us ever since, with profound consequences for American power. I'd say American power in the Middle East was at its zenith in the early to mid-1970s. At a stroke in 1979, that dealt it a terrible blow. And the other thing that happens in 79 is that Deng Xiaoping comes to the United States. And this is an extraordinary moment when he even dons a 10-gallon Texan hat to signal China's new openness to economic reform. Uh, and I think that's the beginning of a really fundamental transformation in the global economic order. So these great shifts, 79, of course, is also the year when the Soviets commit their fatal moment of overstretch, act of overstretch, by invading Afghanistan. So I'd say 79 is the real turning point. After that, the Soviet Union's decline is, in a sense, pre-programmed. After that, the great transformation of the Middle East by radical Islam has begun. After that, China's ascent from the economic doldrums of Maoism has begun. And I think we are still living in that post-1979 world. When when the historians come to write the 10th draft, long after we're dead and buried, I think that'll be one of the years that they pick out when they periodize their books. You're listening to historian Neil Ferguson in conversation with Andres Martinez. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. 2006 has been a very busy year for Zocalo Radio. Click on Zocalo's website to hear radio guests such as former Clinton speechwriter Eric Liu, former White House counsel John Dean, L.A. Dodgers president Jamie McCourt, and many more. Go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. In a moment, Neil Ferguson takes on questions from the Zocalo audience. Stay tuned to Zocalo. another way for you to support public radio programming on KPCC. You can donate your used vehicle to 89.3 by calling 877-KPCC-CAR and we'll handle the rest. A representative will explain all of the details. Most important, you'll be supporting the quality programming you expect from 89.3 KPCC. Call today, 877-KPCC-CAR. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Now it's the Zocalo audience's turn to question historian Neil Ferguson. In following the international news, it seems like whenever anyone really wanted to criticize and really stick it to Tony Blair, they would call him a stooge of President Bush and America, and by extension, all of the U.K., somehow a colony of the U.S., I've heard from a political scientist kind of the opposite theory that the United Kingdom continues to run its empire vicariously through the United States by 
an over-influence on American leaders and these evil Anglo-Saxons over there in England manipulating things and manipulating the Americans. And I was wondering if you could respond to that. Damn! You... <laughs> you finally rumbled us. Yes, I mean, there's a sense in which uh, it was extremely nice to have the United States supporting Britain in its third invasion of Iraq uh, in, the spa- in the space of the last century, and it obviously has helped us immeasurably since our army is really rather small these days. Of course, we had help in 1917. Then it was the Indian army that we were able to bring in to help us control Iraq, and, and in some ways, I think that might have worked a little better than relying on, on the United States. Uh, to, to, to be... Um, To be serious, though, uh, I adopted a position that was perhaps a little perverse. It was certainly idiosyncratic in 2003, which was that while it might very well be the right thing for the United States to overthrow Saddam Hussein, though I had my doubts about the likely outcome of this enterprise, I thought that Britain should not be involved. And I remember a very bitter argument with a group of journalists in New York at that time before the invasion, in which I said it was quite clearly a grave mistake from Blair's point of view to go down this route. I think the special relationship, which is something many British politicians believe in uh, with a quasi-religious faith, is an illusion. In Empire, I argued that the biggest explanation and best explanation for the disintegration of the British Empire was, in fact, the United States and this hostility of Franklin Roosevelt to the British Empire through World War II. And so I don't by this special relationship story. I don't think it's offering any obvious benefit to Britain. I mean, the obvious benefits to the United States are enhanced legitimacy and Tony Blair, who makes great speeches. But, I mean, beyond that, I'm not clear what exactly is in it for Britain. And I think that explains the profound disillusionment that has set in with, with Blair ever since. I don't think it was a good idea for us to be... Well, poodle rather than stooge is the favourite image that that we tend to use in Britain. I think becoming Bush's poodle was Blair's fatal mistake, and it is his tragedy. A politician with so many gifts has been brought low by the fatal flaw that at some level he bought it. Uh, And Tony Blair's seduction by... Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld is one of the great tragedies of modern political times. Do you think the United States has the power and influence today that it had six years ago? Well, this is an easy question to answer because you only need to look at the Pew Global Attitude surveys, which record international views of the United States quite regularly. Uh, We can compare those surveys with surveys done in 2000 by the State Department. They're roughly comparable. And what they show is a fantastic collapse in the international standing of the United States. Just to illustrate the point with one obvious example, going back to the special relationship, if you ask Britons today which countries they rate most highly, they currently rate Germany and Japan above the United States. Now, one of the vices of my countrymen is that they think far too much about World War II. It was, after all, our finest hour, and nothing since has quite been that good. Uh, So for the British to rank the United States below Germans and the Japanese tells you something. And, of course, that's nothing compared with the hostility felt towards the United States in France. Uh, The hostility felt, of course, towards the United States in Muslim 
countries, including Muslim countries that are notionally allied to the United States, uh, Pakistan, for example. So we are in a situation of really quite amazing delegitimization of American power. And indeed, it made me realize that I'd missed a deficit out in Colossus, because there is this fourth deficit, the legitimacy deficit. If you are, if not hated, then at least disliked globally, it's very much harder to get your way. It's a kind of uh, disappearance of what has been called soft power by Joe and I. So there's no question. Empirically, the United States has lost influence in the most dramatic way under this president. Has it lost power? Your question was a double one. But I think it may also have lost power too. Uh, because in a sense, we've seen the limits of American military power laid bare in the streets of Baghdad in our time. It turns out that all the sophisticated weaponry, all the smart bombs, all the shock and awe in the world won't actually establish control over a hostile people because there is a strange symmetry in this kind of warfare. There was a lot of talk of asymmetrical warfare, wasn't there? Not so many years ago. Well, now we've discovered what tremendous symmetry there is in the kind of conflict that has developed in Iraq. So no question, sir. This is a dramatic decline both in influence and in power. If you contemplate what happened after the World Trade Center went down to our democracy, isn't it fair to, to assume that if a nuclear weapon went off in the United States, that in fact would be the end of our democracy? Well, this is a very important question because central to any understanding of the predicament of the United States today has to be a, an awareness of how republics grapple with the challenges of empire. Uh, and this goes far beyond the scope of the war of the world. It extends back to the history of ancient Rome, which is why I quoted Gibbon so extensively in that piece in Vanity Fair. Rereading Gibbon is very salutary at this time because it makes you understand clearly the way in which republican institutions are dissolved by the imperatives, and I use the word advisedly, of the exercise of power on the periphery. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right to argue that there would be a profound impact of a, ma a major terrorist attack dwarfing 9-11 would transform the political landscape here and make almost anything possible. Remember, one of the interesting things about the United States, and it's not new, is its capacity for illiberalism in wartime. In the pity of war, I was amazed to find that the most illiberal regime during the First World War in terms of censorship and the imprisonment of people who broke censorship was the United States. And of course, in World War II, the United States showed itself to be distinctly liberal towards people of Japanese origin within its borders. So I think the kind of illiberal spasm that would follow a, a successful nuclear attack in an American city is a deeply frightening thing. It might not be the end of democracy, but it would certainly take the will of the people and make it amenable to acts of fearful vengefulness. And I think the appetite for vengeance is, is not to be underestimated in this country. The problem will be, of course, that there will be no obvious targets for that vengeful impulse. But no doubt targets will be found. In the descent of the West, were you consciously echoing the decline of the West as a title? Not all of you will have necessarily got the allusion to Osel Spengler's book that was written during the First World War, published shortly after, The Decline of the West. Yes, it was a quite conscious allusion to Spengler, though I rubbish Spengler. I mean, Spengler was a sort of crank. He had a theory about history which likened 
the cycle of civilizations to the seasons. He wanted to see a revenge by a demagogically-led peasantry on the decadent culture of the modern city. In many ways, he was a prophet of National Socialism, and in that sense, the book is justly discredited. It's also unreadable. (laughs) I tried. Uh, And it was one of the most thankless tasks in in the research for this book. So, in a sense, I'm being a little mischievous, and at the end, I I kind of turn Spengler on his head and say that Spengler completely misunderstood what, in fact, was happening in the 20th century, and and that, in a sense, what he wanted, the attack on civilization, is the very thing that caused that descent to happen. Uh, The the decline was self-inflicted. That's a key point the book makes. I should explain that the title itself, The War of the World, is a play, of course, on H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, and the central conceit is that all the things Wells imagined happening when Martians invaded the Earth did happen without the need for any aliens to arrive on the scene. So we constantly devastated cities and destroyed lives and made refugees of millions throughout the 20th century without any need for Martians. We did it to ourselves. Uh, and I think in that sense, the decline of the West was largely self-inflicted. About six years ago in Oslo, Lekwalesa gave an interview talking about the future of the United Nations, and he made two points. He said, either give it a huge amount more power and let it run the world, or get it out of the business totally. What's your opinion? I was thinking about how one could make the United Nations more powerful on the way here. Because, of course, at the moment, it has resources equivalent to roughly 1% of the U.S. federal budget. I mean, financially the United Nations is a very weak thing. Though it does have a kind of legitimacy which the United States has forfeited. But what can one do? More peacekeeping operations? Uh, I can't feel a tremendous thrill of optimism when I hear that yet another UN peacekeeping force has been deployed to yet another conflict zone. Their record is not a particularly inspiring one, particularly if you've spent any time, as I have, in Bosnia, where they were spectators during mass massacres. But there are a couple of things that, that come to mind. At the moment, and here I'm going to try out something which is, which is really a little off the wall. At the moment, fascinatingly, a huge... So we, we live... I mean, we talked about this earlier. We live in a world of tremendous prosperity and tremendous liquidity, vast amounts of money are accumulating in the central banks of emerging markets. These vast international reserves, this is the money that that, uh, is generated by the Federal Reserve and and ends up being accumulated in the form of of notes and bonds by foreign banks who are willing to support your incredible consumption habit. Now, what is to be done with this great quantity of money? Uh, Well, there are a couple of things that, that spring to mind. One is that you could uh, buy small arms and destroy them. An enormous UN fund for the destruction of Kalashnikovs would be the first thing that I would initiate on my appointment as Secretary General. (laughs) And the second thing I would initiate would be the uh, opium fund, which would buy opium and destroy it, in order to uh, transform the economics of Afghanistan. Because trying to eradicate its, its production is just going to bring the Taliban back in. We're engaged in a completely dysfunctional strategy in Afghanistan at the moment. So the UN could tap the vast resources of, of the world's central banks and at least begin to try to remove some of the things that cause 
a trouble around the world. And Kalashnikovs and opium would be a, a pretty good start. There's a modest proposal. <laughs> and remember, you heard it here first. I would uh, challenge that. We tried that with cocaine, and the price dropped in half, and it didn't work. Um, but my question would be, um, how can you say that we've lost our, our dislegitimacy, if you will, has been turned over to the UN, when so much of what we've done is policeman-like, and policemen are rarely popular, but then when you look like, say, France jumping in front of the Lebanon, the Lebanese uh, peacekeeping force, and then saying, okay, we'll give you 500 guys. So I guess then, who are we to diplomacy with, you know, when so much of what we're facing is stubbornness and just anger. Well, there are are two really important points to be made in response to that. I mean, one is don't expect to be loved. Uh, I think one of the problems, and this is in a sense to, to argue against the legitimacy deficit of worrying about the Pew Global Service, is that it's wrong to expect the most powerful nation in the planet to be popular, One of the things the British were very good at 100 years ago was being hated. (laughs) George Orwell is interesting in this respect. If you read Shooting an Elephant, he makes it very clear that he found it extremely difficult to be hated as a policeman in 1930s Burma. But his colleagues didn't. Uh, And in fact, enjoying being hated was one of the characteristic features of a typical (laughs) British imperial official. They rather relished it. So, So it may well be that Americans just have to get used to being the Darth Vaders, the the hate figures of this global movie. The other side of the the question you ask is, who are America's partners? Indeed, are there any genuine partners that the United States can find? Well, it's interesting to see that in the last 12 months or so, the United States has tried to think in terms of finding new partners. And I think the U.S.-Indian relationship is going to be one of the most interesting ones to watch in the years that come. The United States is not unpopular in India, and the majority of Indians have a great deal of sympathy with the rhetoric of the war on terrorism and on radical Islam. So there are some people, to use your terms, that the U.S. can diplomacy with. And it's interesting, you know, that's a pretty populous country with a very large army. (laughs) Hey, it worked for us. You've been listening to Neil Ferguson in conversation with Andres Martinez. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Zocalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O. LA.org. The producer for Zocalo Radio is Peter Stencil. Douglas Gary is our engineer. I'm Marcos Romer. Thanks for listening. Thank you.